Good morning. Hey, how about it? All right, good. Well, my name is Marshall, and let me pray before we look at this passage. Our great God, we uh, come to you, um, and we look at these passages where you call people to follow you. And God, we know that uh, you speak through your word even today. We pray that, again, you would call people to call, follow you for the first time, for the 10,000th time, that we would learn again and afresh that you never get beyond the gospel, only deeper into it. Speak, Lord, for we're listening. I pray that the meditations of all our hearts and my words would be pleasing to you. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I do feel bad about saying that, about their, saying that name. Anyway. Sorry, John and Katie. Um, one of my favorite uh, cultural experiences, about my only cultural experience of the last year, has been going to the immersive Van Gogh experience in downtown uh, Chicago. Some of you have been to this, the immersive Van Gogh experience. I love Van Gogh. He's one of my favorite painters, along with Rembrandt, which I realize is so cliche. It's like saying the Beatles and the Beethoven are your favorite musicians. Uh, but nonetheless, the Van Gogh immersive experience, maybe you have been to it, some came to me after the service and told me they had been. Uh, if you haven't been, you maybe heard about it, let me tell you about it real quickly. Basically, you walk into multiple rooms in this kind of warehouse experience right off Michigan Avenue, and, um, and there's this great soundtrack playing, and on the walls and in all the spaces are these different shifting scenes from Van Gogh's life and from Van Gogh's work. And you're, I mean, literally even the floor is covered with Van Gogh's paintings, and it's moving. It's like a 30-minute mural that just keeps moving. You're literally immersed into the life, into the work of Vincent Van Gogh. It's so compelling. Well, last week we started a sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew, Meeting Jesus in Matthew. In 2019, we covered the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel is 28 chapters long. And this fall, we'll be looking at chapters 8 through chapter 20. And last week, we saw that not only was Jesus a great teacher, like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount way two years ago, uh, but Jesus also demonstrates his power over sickness and over disease. He heals, last week we saw a leper, a Gentile servant, and Peter's mother-in-law. And I noted last week, and I'll say again, that in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, there are 10 miracles. There's 10 miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And intermingled between those miracles, and these are the passages that John just read, intermingled between those miracles are Jesus calling people to follow him. Okay, so this unique mix of Jesus healing people, and then in the midst of that, calling people to follow him, to be his follower. Because Jesus is presented as authoritative and powerful over disease, and really all of reality. And because of that, he has authority in people's lives. It's not just wow, but yes, Lord. You see, the corollary to Jesus is powerful and authoritative. The corollary is that we are called to follow, to obey. So there's three passages that were read here that John read for us a moment ago, and we're only really going to look at the middle story, Jesus calling the man named Matthew. Jesus calling Matthew. And what I want us to see is that this story, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, is an immersion. Chapter 9, the calling of Matthew is an immersion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is audio. It is visual. There is actually taste and smell in that first story. Audio, visual, taste, and smell. This is an immersion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Now, the word gospel, let's start there. Now, the word gospel is a word that is used often, but is often misunderstood. Uh, some of you, there's even churches that don't use that word. So gospel, you may have never heard that word. You may have heard it 10,000 times. What is the gospel? 
Okay, let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, the gospel literally means good news. Okay, that's what it literally means. It means good news. But it's not just news that tells you something. You know, it does, it's not news like bears kick off at noon, cubs miss the playoffs, it's going to rain, high of 72, whatever it's going to be, right? It's not just that kind of news. This is news that changes everything and demands an answer. It's more like saying, I want to marry you, right? You say that sentence, like that's news that offset, it's life-changing and it demands a response, And what I want us to see, and I believe this story will show us and tell us, is the gospel is so much bigger, it is so much better than we think. Anyways, the gospel is like the Marianas Trench. Do you know the Marianas Trench? Over 30,000 feet deep, Challenger deep, 30, you could put Mount, you could put Mount Everest at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and you'd still have like a mile of water above it. And the gospel is that deep, you never get to the bottom of it. The gospel is expansive as our universe. You cannot find the limits of the gospel. You cannot find the edges of the gospel. And also the gospel is like a diamond, a diamond that you can turn again and again, an infinite amount of refractions, endless sparkle. Okay, and in a moment, don't freak out, but I want us to see eight refractions in the gospel. I usually do a three-point sermon this morning, eight points. I will have you out by kickoff at noon, okay? But before I get to the eight refractions, before I get to the eight refractions, let's talk about the context, okay? The context of this story uh, of Matthew's calling. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you would see in verse 1 that Jesus is back in Capernaum, which is where Matthew is. It's actually Jesus' adopted hometown. We, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus make, he moves from Nazareth, basically makes Capernaum his new hometown. Now, Capernaum is on the border of three different areas. To the south, there is Judea. To the northeast is Syria, and to the northwest, and where Capernaum is, is in Galilee, okay? So it's on the border between those three areas. It's in Galilee, and it's on the northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee, which is to say, which is to say that we hear that Matthew is a tax official. It's not like he's collecting income tax. He is a customs official collecting tax on people traveling between different regions, okay? It's a customs official, Okay, so the, this, this tax booth that he's in that's described here is on the border between two regions, and he's taxing imports, and he's also taxing fishermen who are catching fish on the Sea of Galilee. Now, there's no way of knowing this, but it's quite likely that Matthew would have been known by the fishermen in Jesus, the fishermen in Jesus group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they would not have liked Matthew. Interesting little dynamic there. Because tax collectors were hated. Okay, tax collectors were hated, first of all, because they were profiteers. They would take more than they should have, and then they would skim, skim some off the top, and they would line their own pockets. But they were really hated because they worked for the hated Romans. At this time, the Jewish nation was occupied by the Romans, and the tax collectors collected taxes not for the Jewish state, but for the Roman state. And so they were hated by the Jews. And so Matthew would have been considered an outcast, banned from the local synagogue, the local church, not allowed to serve as a witness or a judge, a disgrace to his family, and albeit a rich disgrace. I mean, I try to think of an image, and it would be a little bit like the people who resisted the Nazis and the Germanies in World War II, thinking about the French who collaborated with the Nazis. Or maybe like Bernie Madoff, if you remember that story, who once exposed, it was exposed that he had been selling out his friends and his people to make a buck, to line his own pocket. That's how Jewish tax collectors in the Roman Empire would have been viewish, been viewed. But Moses, excuse me, Moses, Matthew has been hanging around 
He's been listening to Jesus, his new uh, hometown boy here. And when Jesus calls to him to follow, Matthew follows. And then he hosts a party at his house for Jesus and all his old friends. Okay? So that's the context, that's the background. And in this story, I want us to see eight refractions of the gospel. I want to turn the diamond eight different ways. And the first thing I want us to see is this, that the gospel is ultimate. And it takes precedent over all other obligations. Okay? Only someone who believes they have an all-important task, only someone who believes they have an all-important task would issue a statement like, follow me. And only someone who thinks it's all-important believes and actually follows. Now, if you're a boss, if you're an employer, you may have been put in this position of offering someone a job in a different city. And what you're asking them to do is you're saying, come work for my company, come work for me. I need you to sell your house, I need you to approach your children, all your networks, I need you to move to this place. It's a pretty big deal to ask someone to do this. Well, what's happening here is like that on steroids. Jesus is asking Matthew to redefine his old life and to reorder his life around him. Follow me, Jesus is saying. And this only makes sense if Jesus is the Lord. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, 20th century apologist for Christianity, uh, has a very famous statement that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's a liar in the sense of like a cult leader, like a David Koresh, like misleading people and knowing it, claiming to be the Lord. He's a lunatic. He doesn't even know it. He's not even in his right mind, like a fried egg in his mind. Or he is the Lord, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And Jesus is here making claims to ultimate authority in a man's life and in your life and mine. And if he is the Lord, his claim is ultimate. And so Jesus is basically saying to Matthew, you've got to leave your career to follow me. Uh, he actually says you've got to leave your family. In chapter 8, verse 22, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, to the guy who says, I want to bury my dad. The funeral would have been within 24 hours in a Jewish setting. So he's not saying skip the funeral. This is a guy who's saying, I want to hang around until my father dies. I need to finish my family business. Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. When your dad dies, it'll be okay. Follow me. He said, the gospel is about the lordship of Jesus, and it takes precedence over all other obligations. Okay, so that's the first refraction. The second refraction, the second refraction is the gospel is about the unconditional acceptance of Jesus for us. Now, first of all, Matthew's an interesting choice for Jesus. If you're trying to build out your leadership team, I mean, he risks, first of all, offending religious people because of the immorality of Matthew. He risks upsetting the patriotic instincts of the common people, the common Jewish people, and he risks upsetting the Romans because they're taking away, he's taking away a toll collector. It's not exactly a consensus building choice. But here's the real deal, okay? Think what Jesus does not say to Matthew. There's unconditional acceptance. He does not say, Matthew, clean up your act, and then you can follow me. He does not say, Matthew, you just need to stop it, and then you can come follow me. He does not say God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible. He does not even say, Matthew, I'm going to give you a trial period, see how you do for a little bit. Maybe you know you stop stealing all the money. Maybe you give back some to the poor. No. He simply says, follow me. This is a statement of unconditional acceptance and embrace. Last week we saw that with Jesus, Jesus is the clean one. He is cleanliness. And he makes other people clean. We are not clean. We can't clean up ourselves. Matthew can't clean up himself. But Jesus offers unconditional acceptance, embrace, 
and love. We say here regularly, and I'm going to say it again, the gospel is that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. And you were more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. You see, the gospel of Jesus, friends, the good news of Jesus, is prior to any life change. It is not conditioned upon life. There was no if in his statement, right? It was unconditional acceptance. Yes, change follows, but it is no way conditioned upon that change. You don't clean yourself up. Jesus cleans us. But the third thing, and this brings us to the third refraction, the gospel is compelling. I mean, think about this. Jesus says, follow me. And frankly, in some of the most amazing words in all of literature, it says of Matthew, he rose and followed him. He simply walked away from the life that he knew. He had seen and heard something that he wanted to be a part of. Now again, they had been a part of the same hometown most likely. He had heard Jesus preach. He had seen some of the miracles. He had heard the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Certainly he was attracted to the community that Jesus was building. But there was something in Jesus that was compelling to Matthew. So that he simply walked away from his tax booth. It's an amazing picture. In literature, it's just amazing. He literally follow me and he rose and walked away. Matthew was compelled. Something inside of him broke that day, and something inside of him was healed. And he followed because the gospel of Jesus is compelling. It's compelling. And the first thing that Matthew did, interestingly, and this brings us to the fourth refraction, is that he invited Jesus over to meet his old friends. The fourth refraction is that Jesus is always about and into community. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table, and in the gospel of Mark it makes it clear that it's Matthew's house, and he reclined at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Here's what I want you to notice. Did you notice that Jesus takes his disciples, his community, and he takes them to Matthew's network? I love this. He takes his community of disciples and he melds it with Matthew's network. The great thing about when a person comes to faith is their whole family, their whole network is impacted and exposed to the work of Jesus. And let me hear you say, let me say this. I got the microphone, of course I'm going to say it. The gospel of Jesus shines brightly when the community of faith is interacting with skeptics and deniers, people who are not Jesus followers. To use a biblical metaphor, that's being salt and light. Now, before I was a pastor here on the North Shore of Chicago, I was a pastor in Los Angeles. And before I was a pastor in Los Angeles, I was a pastor in Alabama. And so when I was a pastor in Alabama and they were trying to recruit me to this church in Los Angeles, the first visit I made to Los Angeles was around Christmas time. So I did all the interviews and then it was nighttime, it was time to go, and they had a party to go to, so they took me with them to this party, the folks that were recruiting me. And the party was a Christian who was in the entertainment business, the entertainment industry. And there's this lovely party in Beverly Hills. And this the person who was hosting the party had intentionally invited 50% people who were Jesus followers and 50% of people who were not Jesus followers. And just kind of, you know, put them together, see what happens. And it was a great party. And again, I'm living in Alabama at the time, okay? So literally I walk in with like, you know, four lovers of pleats on each side. I mean, uh, you know, $10 haircut. Uh, I was the original Beverly Hillbilly. Um, but the moment I, I knew, the moment I knew I was interested in moving to Los Angeles to this church, I was talking to a woman from the Jewish faith 
She was an old school Hollywood family. Um, she was not a follower of Jesus, but she was mildly interested in Jesus. It's interesting she told me her family story. Her dad had actually been an attorney for many of the Christian televangelists. And so she'd seen the underbelly of Christianity. And remember, this is 12 years ago. Before I give you the punchline, this is 12 years ago. Uh, when this was a more scandalous statement. And I said, well, what do you, that's what your dad did. What did you do? What do you do? And she said, well, I produced the first gay horror film. And I thought to myself, this is my kind of church. This is my kind of place. People who love and follow Jesus, mixing and mingling with those who don't, coming together to talk about the claims of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. You see, friends, the gospel is always about and it's always unto and into community. Which brings me to a quick but glancing refraction that I want us to see. And this is the fifth one. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a party. It is a party. Verse 10, they are reclining at the table, right? They're recli- Everyone feels welcomed. Everyone feels accepted. They feel appreciated. They feel known. And they all have a good time. And that when you all say, Jesus is known for this. He's known for going to these parties. And you never have a record of Jesus teaching at these parties. He's just at the party. You see, the gospel of Jesus produces people who party well because we have something worth celebrating. Because we have something worth celebrating. I mean, you're like, I don't know, this is Marshall trying to push rock the blood. No, this is from the Bible. This is from the Bible. What does it say? What does the Bible say? Some of you uh, smart Bible people, when it says, you know, when one sinner repents, what happens in heaven? The angels rejoice, right? Okay, what's the end of the Bible? Where are we headed? What's the end of the Bible? Revelation 21, what is that? It's a party. It's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then maybe the most famous parable of all time, the most famous gospel parable is what? The parable of the prodigal son. And where does that story end? In a party. The gospel is a party, friends, because we have something worth celebrating. But this brings me to the important part of the uh, the party that I want to talk about. It's the sixth little refraction. Again, we're turning the diamond. The gospel offers welcome to all. It is a come-as-you-are party. They're reclining. In verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's a Middle Eastern uh, proverb that is most likely known to Jesus. The sentiment certainly was, and it's this. Think about this. I saw them eating, I saw them eating, and I knew who they were. I saw them eating, and I knew who they were. And that's true for us today, right? You can tell a lot about a person by watching them at a meal. I mean, why do so many business deals close at a meal? Why do so many interviews close with a meal? Because you can watch a person, you can learn something. The quality and the price of the food with whom they eat, how they treat a wait staff, how they interact with others. Do they take the last piece of bread or the last chip? My wife tells a story of being seated next to me at a dinner party before we were dating, and I ate off her plate, she says, without asking. I saw them eating, and I knew who they were. But verse 10 tells us that the tax collectors and sinners, were they came and they were reclining. Now, we already heard a little bit about the tax collectors. Let me tell you a little bit about the sinners. In this time, the sinner would have been uh, several things. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way. In Jesus' day, sinners fell into five basic categories. People who did dirty things for a living, pig farmers and tax collectors. People who did immoral things, liars and adulterers. 
people who did not keep the religious law, Samaritans and Gentiles. To put that in 21st century parlance, think of a young meth addict with AIDS, a prostitute, an adulterer, Lance Armstrong, someone who has cheated. This is who Jesus is eating with. It is an unsavory lot. And it's not an isolated incident, right? Eating with sinners is what Jesus became known for. I mean, he is known for this. You look through the gospel, he's known for it. He wants to be there. He wants to be seen to make his gospel known. And what do Jesus' behavior, what do his eating habits tell us about Jesus? They tell us that everyone is welcome. And not only is everyone welcome, but the people at that party, they felt welcomed. It's not just, hey, everybody's welcome. Everybody felt welcomed by Jesus. Now, the Pharisees that are mentioned here in verse 11, they are religious people. They're good people, family values people, patriots. And they are either confused or angry. You can't quite tell from the context here. They're either confused or angry. And they're saying, why does he, he, they go to Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They ask his disciples. Why is he their friend? Because, see, this text starts to show us where religion and the gospel of Jesus part ways. Because religion is about purity and barriers and rules. But the good news of Jesus is about welcome. Welcome for sinners, unrighteous people. Some of you would have heard this summer that uh, Rick Warren, uh, he's in his late 60s, and he resigned as the pastor of Saddleback Church, which he had founded 30 or 40 years ago. At one time, Saddleback Church was the largest church in America, the fastest growing church in America. And you know what the leadership development engine of that church was and is? A ministry called Celebrate Recovery. It's basically a Christian version of AA. That's how they built their ministry. That's how he raised up leaders through a community of addicts, through a community of people who are addicted to everything from pornography to alcohol to drugs. They were welcomed. They were welcomed, and it led to one of the fastest-growing churches in the history of America. So the gospel is about welcome. And this brings us to the next gospel refraction of the seventh. The gospel is about people who know their need. And actually, the gospel is only about people who know their need. Again, the Pharisees ask, why does your teacher do this? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then let me paraphrase Dale Bruner and Eugene Peterson, the words of Jesus, verses 12 and 13. This is what Jesus is saying. Who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? Go and learn what this means, verse 13. I'm after mercy, not religion. I did not come to invite good people. I came for bad people. This, for you, I mean, I don't know who you're thinking of as you hear me preach. This story is not, this story is not for your alcoholic neighbor. This story is not for your adulterer, your cousin who's in the midst of an adulterous affair. This story is not for somebody who's broken in your life who needs the gospel. This story is for you. This story is for me. This story is for the we sinners who need Jesus. You see, the only condition for the gospel is that you admit your need. You admit your weakness, right? If you don't think you're sick, you don't need the physician. If you don't think you're sick, you don't need Jesus. And in fact, if you don't think you're sick, the gospel's not for you, right? We are the sinners that Jesus is talking about. We need the doctor. And friends, I got good news. The doctor's in the house. <laughs> the doctor is in the house. Which brings me to my last refraction about the gospel here. The gospel is about the love of God. Look with me 
chapter 9, verse 36, this is the next little section. Before he calls his disciples, which is what he does at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers. Now I could point out several things, but I just want to say this. What is motivating Jesus? What is motivating Jesus is compassion. How do you think God thinks of you? How do you think he feels about you? It's not disgust. It's not disappointment. Chapter 11, a couple chapters later in Matthew, it will say Jesus is the friend of sinners. He enjoys being with sinners. They feel welcomed and comfortable around him. I don't know what you're first thought of when you think of Jesus. I'll be honest, oftentimes my instinctive prayer, when I'm just thinking I need to pray to God, I'll say, God, forgive me. That is, that's not right. I'll just tell you that. That's not right because what am I thinking? I'm thinking that in some way I'm disgusting to Jesus or that, I, I, he, that he, I need to clean up before I come to him. But he's saying, no, he's motivated not by disgust or disappointment. He's motivated by compassion, acceptance. Do you feel that love? He is motivated by his love for us and not anything else. Think about the way you think about your children and multiply it times a million. Motivated by compassion. Now, you know the thing about an immersion experience like with the Van Gogh experience? You know the thing about an immersion experience, if, especially if it's something that's really good and really true and really beautiful? You know what you want after an immersion experience like that? You want more. Like, I want more of Van Gogh in my life. I want to go to Amsterdam, see where he was raised. I want to go to the Amsterdam uh, Van Gogh Museum. I want more. I want to take that next step into this immersive experience. Well, what about the gospel? What is the next step for you? Maybe it's the first step into the gospel. You've never claimed Jesus. You've never believed stepping to Jesus. Maybe it's the 10,000th time stepping to Jesus. You see, you never get the gospel. You never understand. I, my, my, one of my mentors in college used to say, you never, have you figured out, Marshall, that you're not going to figure it out? Have you gotten that you're not going to get it? There is no getting the gospel. There is only going deeper into it. Going to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, turning the diamond one more time. I could be here all afternoon continuing to turn that diamond, and we wouldn't exhaust it. We wouldn't exhaust it. So what is the next step for you? Maybe it's a profession of faith. Maybe it's going to your grace group this afternoon. Maybe it's finding a way to serve. Maybe it's throwing a party. Maybe it's coming to meet with a pastor or talking to a friend. Maybe it's reading a book. What is the next step in this immersion experience? I want to close with the words of the Apostle Paul, the great book of Romans. I just finished reading it uh, just in my personal time. It's a great uh, story of the gospel of God. At the end of chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, St. Paul, he has reflected more deeply than anyone ever. He's turned the dime in as many ways as it can be turned. That's, Matthew, uh, that's Romans chapters 1 through 11. He keeps turning it. And then he gets to the end of himself. He gets to the end of himself at the end of Romans chapter 11. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about the gospel. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths beyond finding out. Who has ever known the mind of God? Or who has ever been God's counselor that they should advise him? But for him and through him and to him are all things. For to God belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel is so much deeper and better and bigger than we ever could have imagined. And it's on offer for us right here. Let me pray for us.
God, we thank you that your love for us, your compassion, your acceptance is bigger and greater than anything we could imagine. And I pray for every person in this room, whatever it is, that we would take that next step towards you, towards your gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.